I would ask you, if you would, to go ahead and stand back up. Sorry. I think I did that last time. Genesis chapter 1. We're just going to read a few verses from Genesis chapter 1, and then we're going to kind of jump over uh, a few books. So um, just follow along. I'll, I'll, I'll call out the verses while, we, uh, while we're reading. And I just want you to, there's a few things here in Genesis I want us to see uh, before we head over to where we'll be spending the bulk of our time this morning. Genesis chapter 1, starting in verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was, at, was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. Let's get down and look at verse number 8. If you remember, the, this is the account of the, of, this is the creation account. And at the end of every day, here in verse number 8, we see, And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. We go down to verse 13. There was evening and there was morning the third day. Verse 19. There was evening and there was morning the fourth day. Verse 23. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And verse 31. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. And then look at chapter 2, verse number 1. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Father, we pray that you bless the reading of your word. Give us grace to, to hear, eyes to see, ears of understanding, hearts that are soft to receive your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. You can go ahead and flip over to John 20. That's going to be where we spend the majority of our time this morning. And I wanted to read Genesis 1, those few verses, before we do that. I'm going to continue reading in John 20, starting in verse number 1. I hear pages turning. That's a good sound. I'll wait for, for that to stop, and we'll read together. John 20. Starting in verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together. One commentator says there's more running in these three verses than there are in the entirety of the rest of the Gospels. Both of them were running together. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen clothes lying there. But he didn't go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen clothes lying there and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in, uh, in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first 
also went in. And he saw and he believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had laid, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, They've taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. But Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Well, supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I'll take him away. But Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, Don't cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, and to my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he has said these things to her. One of my favorite authors of all time is a man named C.S. Lewis. And he said about this passage, the New Testament writers speak as if Christ's achievement and rising from the dead was the first event of its kind in the whole history of the universe. He is the first fruits, the pioneer of life. He has forced open a door that has been locked since the death of the first man. He has met, fought, and beaten the king of death. Everything is different because he has done so. What would Lewis and countless others understand what had happened the morning of the third day after Jesus' death? Why would it be so important? There's, there's one scholar named N.T. Wright who tells a story about a, a wealthy donor who um, has this beautiful, invaluable painting. I mean, you can't measure it how much it's worth. I mean, it's, it's, it's more valuable than we can imagine. And the donor donates it to this university. And the university, after determining, hey, this is really, we want to display it. We're not really sure what to do with it. After a while, they determined, we don't really have any good place to put this. We don't really have a good place to display it where it will fit and we'll get the, uh, what it's worthy of. And so after determining how valuable it is, here's what they do. This is a story. This is a story. It's not true. Uh, it's kind of a parable of sorts. But here's what they decide to do in this story. They tear down the whole place and they rebuild it around the painting. That's how valuable it is. And I'd say that's how we need to think of the resurrection. It is so valuable and indispensable, paradigm shifting, yet so unexpected when it happened that everything, not just in our personal lives, but also the church and the world needs to be rebuilt and approached with the resurrection of Jesus Christ at the center. It's also like Lewis said, this is a quote that he's famous for, uh, I believe in Christianity as I believe the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. You ever heard this? The resurrection of the Lord Jesus illuminates everything. It sheds light on everything, not just because we see it, but because by it we see everything else. We view the world through the resurrection. 
Here's a question I want to ask today. And we've been going through 1 Peter here as a church family. Pastor Brandon's been taking us through. And uh, 1 Peter, among uh, many of the other epistles, are written in such a way that they tell us um, doctrine. They tell us truth. And then they tell us, in light of that truth, here's how you're supposed to live your life, right? Here's what this truth means for your life. It's one of those things where we'd say, if your doctrine doesn't lead to doxology, if what you know doesn't lead you to worship, then we need to rethink some things, right? The, the epistles are written, and First Peter is written to say, hey, here's what you've been uh, reborn to. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has caused us to be born again to a living hope, right? Now, later on, we'll see when we get back to First Peter, what, that, what does that mean? But I want to take today and just kind of elaborate on that uh, to a living hope through the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. So here's a question I want to ask. Could we still adhere to Jesus' teachings, preach Christ and Him crucified, share the good news of Jesus fighting the King of Death and winning, had He not been raised from the dead? The resounding answer, at least in your heart, you can say it out loud if you want to, would be no. Of course we can't. Uh, Paul tells Timothy that in the resurrection, that the Spirit vindicated Jesus Christ. Everything he had said was proved to be true. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 things like, If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, your faith is in vain, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. That is the situation if Jesus has, uh, and we'd go further to say, bodily been raised from the dead. If what we just read about in John 20 is not true, our preaching is in vain, your faith is in vain, your faith is futile, and you and I are still in our sins. In other words, the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ is of utmost importance. And if he has not been raised from the dead, everything was a lie, and he is not worthy of your worship. But if he has, everything has to change. And the good news is, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, he has. He has been raised. And he says, if you don't believe me, go talk to the hundreds of people who've spoken with him since he was crucified on the cross. So here's the first thing I want to talk to us about this morning is the start of something new. With that as a backdrop, I want us to look at the first verse again of this chapter. And this is what John, John says in John 20. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been rolled away from the tomb or taken away from the tomb. Here's a very significant question, and it's worth your time to consider. Why doesn't John call this the third day? Many times, while we read Genesis 1, and we'll kind of, give, give, uh, kind of show my cards here, this is why we read Genesis 1, and we're going to kind of fill in some of these gaps. But Jesus called it that. In Matthew chapter 16, Matthew chapter 27, Mark 8, Mark 9, all over the place in the Scriptures, this is what Jesus would say. The Son of Man must be crucified, must suffer at the hands of these particular people, and then be raised back on the third day. So why doesn't John say that? Why, doesn't, why don't we get to John 20 and, and John say, now on the third day after the crucifixion? Why doesn't he use the same language? Why does he say the first day of the week? You remember what John's prologue is about? John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word. You thought I was going to quote Genesis 1, didn't you? There's a reason for that. There's a reason your mind goes there. 
John wants his reader to understand that God is doing something new here. Something strange is happening, and that is why we see, just like Genesis 1 says, in the beginning God made the heavens and the earth, and John 1 says in the beginning was the Word. Also in Genesis 1, 3-5 says, And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness, and He called the day, light day, and the darkness He called night. And there was evening and morning the first day, the second day, the third day, the fourth day, the fifth day, and the sixth day. You know what we don't see at the end of the seventh day? The Scripture does not say, and there was morning and there was evening the seventh day. This long Sabbath rest that had been going, Genesis 1 and John 1 through John 20, both are new beginnings. Darkness and chaos abound in one moment. God says, let there be light. And you might be wondering, well, are you talking about creation account or the resurrection? There's a reason that this is ambiguous, that when we ask that question, your mind goes to both of those events. On resurrection day, the light of the world emerged from the tomb as the light of new creation. There's a reason that I wanted to say this, it has begun. How many of you guys know the last words of Jesus on the cross in John's gospel? What does he say? It is finished. And you say in your Bible, if you're, you know, the, the headings in your Bible are not inspired, just the text. And sometimes I think it would be helpful for me if I were writing headings in these passages. In John 19, I would write, it is finished. And in John 20, I would say, it has begun. Something new has begun. John wants us to see that Resurrection Day is the start of God's new creation. He wants us to understand that the resurrection of Jesus is not some arbitrary event. Remember when Jesus standing outside the tomb of Lazarus and he's talking to Martha. And, and uh, he asked her, don't you believe your brother's going to be resurrected? And she, kind of confused, but if she was taking the theology exam as a good Jewish person, she gave the right answer. Well, yes, we know at the end of the age, uh, everybody's going to be raised back. And Jesus, this is what he says. No, I'm the resurrection and the life. And, and then he says, and if you die, if you believe in me and you die, you actually won't die. You, you shall live. And then he says, Lazarus, come out of that tomb. It's not merely the third day after Jesus' crucifixion. It is the first day of something brand new. Something has come to an end and something has begun at the resurrection of Jesus. Tim Keller says, The resurrection is not a stupendous magic trick, but it is an invasion. Have you ever considered, have you ever thought about that for a minute? Like, what is the resurrection? What does it mean for us? What's happening in the world? On the third day of this, as far as the world was concerned, seemingly normal week, the first day of the new creation began like an invasion. We'll talk about that more here in a few minutes. But Jesus, the defeater of death, emerged victorious from the tomb as the first but not the last person to be resurrected to glorious new life. The resurrection was the start of something new, and John wants you and me to know this. So if you remember in verses 1 through 10 of John 20, Mary's utterly confused. She doesn't understand what's going on. There's chaos, confusion, darkness. She comes to the tomb early in the morning. Mary goes to the tomb early. It's dark outside. 
probably giving us a vivid picture of the literal darkness meant to symbolize the darkness still engulfing Mary's understanding of what has happened. Mary is no doubt very afraid and confused. Would you be afraid and confused? Been following this guy for years? You'd heard him say things that you didn't understand? On the, I'm going to have to suffer and be raised back on the third day. And then you show up on the third day and the tomb's rolled away, the, the stone's rolled away, and his body's gone. Would you be confused and afraid? Mary is confused and afraid. Her confusion and lack of understanding about Jesus' words come out by what she does when she realizes the stone is rolled away. She does not go into the tomb. She just sees the stone rolled away, and then she runs as fast as she can. Just think about this for a minute, because I just think about this. What would cause you to run as fast as you could? The older I get, the, the shorter that list gets. I did think about this yesterday. We went out to, our, to, to my family farm. We're riding the four-wheeler. And uh, there's a few bear, more bear out there than there have been in the past. And I remember when I was a kid. And I thought, I had Kelly was with me and Sam and Hal. And we were riding the four-wheelers. And I thought, I think, well, I was on a four-wheeler, so I wouldn't run, to be fair. I would probably just drive away. But if a bear got after me, that would be one thing on the short list of things that would cause me to run as fast as humanly possible. As, at least as, far as, I, as fast as I could run. But y'all... Here's what happens in this, in this situation. Mary gets to the tomb. She sees a stone rolled away, and, she, I mean, boom, runs off to find Peter and John. She's still confused. She's still afraid. She doesn't know what to do. She's afraid, in the dark, lost in misunderstanding. What does Genesis 1 say? There's chaos, confusion, darkness. God speaks order, light. We'll return to that in a minute. In verses 8 through 10, John's faith. So Mary runs to get Peter and John. Again, she's scared, confused. Peter and John take off to the tomb. And I do find it interesting that in this particular passage, uh, we always talk about how humble John is. He never refers to himself by name. He calls himself the, the disciple whom Jesus loved, right? And in this passage, there's two things that he wants us to know. Number one, uh, Jesus is not in the tomb. Something weird's going on. And number two, he is faster than Peter. Right? He says it two times. He arrived at the tomb first, and he outruns Peter. So, might say John's humble, but maybe not quite as humble as we thought he was. Anyway, I digress. John arrives at the tomb first, and then Peter, kind of out of breath, arrives in. But John doesn't go in. John's kind of hanging on to the roof, kind of looking in, see what's going on. Second John, Peter gets there. He goes in, and he wants to see what's going on. Where's my Lord? So, they rush to the tomb. John looks and sees the burial clothes. But he stays outside, and Peter again, bold and confident Peter, arrives and goes right in. And John writes with intentionality and purpose. And there, You remember uh, in John 20, verse 31, John tells us why he wrote his gospel. He says, I've written these things that you might believe. John does not try to hide his agenda for writing his gospel. He tells us, I wrote this stuff, and at the end of the book he says, I, if all the things Jesus did were written down, the world couldn't contain the books. So he had to be particular about what he chose to write down, and he was. Very particular. He wrote with intentionality and purpose in order that we would believe. But you remember in, in, um, in John's gospel, another resurrection has happened. It's the raising of a man named Lazarus, close friend of Jesus. Remember uh, a messenger sent to Jesus and he says, uh, Lord, your, your friend is sick. He's going to die if you don't come. And then what do we see? Jesus just kind of hangs out where he is for a little while. And then when he gets there, Mary and Martha both, Lord, if you've been here, he might not have died. John writes about these two resurrections on purpose. 
What is similar is important, but what is different is even more important. What does John see when he goes inside? He sees the burial clothes lying neatly and the linen that had been around Jesus' head folded up, not thrown into the corner by some grave robbers. It's been set to the side. Lazarus emerged from the tomb needing help to remove the grave clothes. Remember this? Jesus calls, Lazarus, come forth. We talked about this just a couple of weeks ago. Lazarus emerges. He doesn't emerge uh, in, a, in a new set of clothes with a glorified body. He is raised back to life and his old body still wrapped up in the grave clothes. And when he comes out, Jesus tells all those around, hey, help him out. Like, take those clothes off of him. Jesus' grave clothes are left behind altogether. Lazarus came back into a world where death threats still mattered. You remember in John 12? Uh, we're told that the chief priests began to conspire how they were going to kill Lazarus a second time. Right? That would be really bad. Like, you die because you're sick and your friend hangs out and doesn't come and raise you. So you die, and then you're raised back to life. And then all of a sudden, the second you're raised back to life, the chief priests start conspiring how they're going to kill you a second time. Death threats still mattered. But Jesus had entered death and emerged out the other side into a new world. A new creation where death itself had been defeated, but not yet destroyed. That's a, a big deal. We'll talk about that more here in just a few minutes, too, when we talk about how we can apply this. But we're told when John walks into the empty tomb, when he sees that it truly is empty, and these clothes lie neatly there, he believes. John has concluded that what Jesus had been telling them all along was true. There's still some confusion. They didn't understand that he would have to be raised from the dead, but... So, but we still had this weird passage. Didn't understand quite what was going on, but he did believe. And he believed that the one he had seen preached the kingdom of God. Heal people, cast out demons, raise the dead, be arrested, crucified, and buried in that particular tomb was alive. And he saw and he believed. John tells us these details because they're important. Another commentator says, explains that most of these early witnesses came to faith in Jesus not because they couldn't find his corpse, but because they saw him alive. John tells us the details of these burial clothes because it is this that led to John's belief. Two things, real quick. The importance of the empty tomb historically and theologically. Historically speaking, Paul speaks about the empty tomb of Jesus as the central point of the gospel in 1 Corinthians 15, that it is of great importance. The early church and the message they proclaimed is inexplicable apart from the empty tomb. You cannot explain it. In history, one, one person says, even on the doubtful supposition that all the first Christians were dupes, how many of you have ever been called a dupe or a worse word than that for believing what we believe? Even on the doubtful supposition that all the first Christians were dupes or even hallucinating enthusiasts, the Jewish authorities, though they had every incentive to do so, could not come up with the body of the man whose execution they had organized. They couldn't come up with it. They couldn't find it. Remember this where they said that there was a conspiracy among the, uh, the Jewish leaders that, they would, that this would be covered up. Go cover this up. It's very important historically. You cannot explain the history of the world. You realize while we are existing right now in the year 2021 and not the year some 6,021? Do you know why? It's because at the center of human history, Jesus Christ stepped out of the tomb. Theologically, it's very important too. I talked about this a little bit, but it's worth repeating. 
When the early Christians said that Jesus had risen from the dead, they knew they were saying that something had happened to him that had happened to nobody else and that nobody else had expected to happen. In other words, Jesus' resurrection does not mean that he was raised to life in the Spirit or that he merely seemed to be resurrected. This was actually a uh, heresy in the early church called docetism, and it means to, seek, to seem. There was a whole school of thought where people just thought Jesus merely, uh, people, he seemed to be resurrected, but he actually wasn't resurrected. But what Jesus, John, Paul, Peter, and all the others want us to see here is that Jesus walked out of the tomb, resurrected, back to life in his body. His resurrection is important because it confirmed he was exactly who he'd been saying he was all along, the Son of God. He was vindicated in the Spirit. It validated Messianic prophecy and his resurrection as the first fruits of that which is to, to come. We know our bodies will be raised because Jesus' body was raised. This is one very practical application. We'd say, well, how's, how does, how's resurrection practical? Here's one reason, one way. In our church family, over the past several years, year and a half or so, and, and before that, we experienced death as a church family. And one way that this is applicable to you right now is you know because Jesus was raised back to life in his body that we too shall be raised. Those who have gone before us, this faithful cloud of witnesses who are in the heavenlies right now and surrounding us, they will be raised back to life in their bodies, in a glorified body, in a new heavens and a new earth. That changes everything. Or it should change everything. Let's go back, as John does, to Mary's faith here in verses 11 through 18. John and Peter have returned home, but Mary stands weeping outside the tomb. So John believes, don't know what to do. They go back. Mary Magdalene is left there weeping at the tomb. She stoops to look inside the tomb, and when she does, she sees two angels dressed in white. She's still confused and afraid. She hears an odd question. It's kind of one of those things like uh, in the scriptures, often when you see these types of questions, you just kind of like, why are you crying? And it's like, man, uh, it's kind of like the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, you know, um, when Jesus comes to them and they're just, it's almost like the questions that's being asked is like, do you not know what's going on? We thought Jesus was going to be the one to, to redeem and rescue Israel and bring the kingdom. And here it's kind of like, why are you crying? Well, don't you know the, the, the one that, we, that I thought was the Lord uh, was, was just confused. He's, his body's now gone. The hope that I had that I could at least honor him by uh, taking care of his body after he had been crucified. Now I can't even do that. Then she explains to them why she's crying, and she turns around and she sees somebody. It's probably still in the early hours of the morning, probably still dark. Maybe her eyes are adjusting to the sun as it rises. So she expresses the same thing to this guy. If you carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I'll take him away. Just tell me, like through tears. Just imagine that. Consider that. Consider a loved one passing away, and all you want to do is honor their body after they've been uh, after they died, and then you can't even do that. Out of despair, agony, please tell me where his body is. I just want to honor his body. Then we see something incredible. If he doesn't understand who he is, supposing him to be the gardener, Jesus says, 
Mary. Darkness gives way to light. What happens in Genesis 1? God speaks and light is. In John 20, what happens? The word of the Lord stands forth and speaks to Mary. Boom. All darkness gone. All chaos gone. All confusion gone. She realizes exactly who is speaking to her. In that moment, Rabbi. She knows exactly who he is. What was confusing to her just a few moments ago, now it all makes sense. All of the sound of Jesus speaking her name. John 10, 27 and 28 says, My sheep hear my voice. I know them, they follow me. I give them eternal life and they'll never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Jesus will not let anyone or anything snatch his sheep from his hand. Notice what he does through this chapter. He gives John what he needs in order to believe. We've already seen that. He gives Peter what he needs in order to believe. He gives Mary what she needs in order to believe. And then later on, he gives Thomas what he needs in order to believe. This is a picture. This is what Jesus doesn't do. He doesn't say something without backing it up. And Jesus says, hey, if you belong to me, nothing can snatch you out of my hand. You want an example? Hey, Thomas, this is what you need. Here you go. John, you need an example? Come in here and look at these, and look at these grave clothes. They're folded up nicely in the corner. Boom, believes. Mary, you're confused. You don't understand. Nobody can take you from me. And he speaks your name. Boom. Light. If you are here this morning and you feel like you are in the dark, maybe you're confused, maybe you're afraid, there would be a lot of things in this current climate that that could evoke fear. Unless you've been living under a rock for the last couple of years. There's a lot going on. Listen for the voice of Jesus. He is calling your name. Right now. Come home. All you who are weary, come home. He knows you. He knows every hair on your head. For some of y'all, that's easier than others. But He knows it. He knows your name. And when He speaks, darkness, chaos, confusion goes away. Light comes out. Now we get this weird little thing of supposing Him to be the gardener. We started off talking about God doing something new in Jesus. And we said, you know how every day came to a conclusion? Evening and morning the first day, except for the seventh. And then there was evening and morning the seventh day, evening and morning the second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth. But on the seventh day, God rested. But then John picks up that thread and he says, but now, on the first day of the week. Do you guys see this? The first day of the week, the first day of new creation, what Paul says, Jesus in his glorified body is the first fruits of the resurrection. He is the first one, but many will follow. We are included in that. We'll be raised back to life. On resurrection day, something new started. In Genesis 2.15, you can turn there, you can just listen. Genesis 2.15 says this. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden. But then he goes on to explain, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you do that, you'll, you'll die. But this is what God told Adam and Eve to do. 
The language used for working here is, that is attributed to Adam and the priests under the Old Covenant in the tabernacle and in the temple setting was that they were to keep it. They were to garden it. They were to take care of it, to nourish it. And then here in John 20, 15, John tells us, supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him and I'll, make him, I'll take him away. Notice that it doesn't say she mis- mistook him for the gardener. You know why this is important? Because Jesus is the new Adam over a new creation. Jesus, supposing him to be the gardener, you say if there's one, the first thing said about Jesus in the garden after his resurrection is affirming the reality that Jesus himself is the new Adam over the new creation. He is the one who brings about the new heavens and the new earth and the new creation. And it all happened in that moment where he breathed his first breath after his resurrection and boom, light enters into a dark world. Adam's responsibility was to fill the earth and subdue it. Adam and Eve were to take care of the garden, which was God's dwelling place, and extend that over the whole face of the earth. In other words, Adam was a gardener. He was to cultivate and extend the garden, but he failed. And Mary, (laughs) supposing Jesus to be the gardener, he is himself the image of God, the exact imprint of his nature. And as Paul and the writer of Hebrews say about Jesus in these two great passages, Jesus is the one through his church who by the power of the Holy Spirit will actually fill the earth and subdue it with the glory of God by causing people to be born again, to truly reflect the glory of God as we were always intended to do. And this way, it is only Jesus and being in Jesus that we can actually be truly human. Did you ever heard Jesus referred to in that way? Jesus is the true human. Jesus is the one who lived perfectly. See, you and I are broken. We're broken people. Jesus is not. And the way that we can live out this responsibility in, uh, after the resurrection is by being in the Lord Jesus. And then Jesus, the gardener over the new creation, gives the great commission. And this is what he says. The, the creation mandate of the New Testament. You could think about it like that. Fill the earth and subdue it. Old Testament. Go make disciples. New Testament. This is what Jesus, or God says over and over again in Genesis when he's talking to, he says, it says it to Adam, says it to Noah, says it to Abraham, says it to Isaac, says it to Jacob, etc. Like, he'll start over, essentially. Fill the earth and subdue it, right? Have dominion, fill the earth and subdue it. Multiply, exercise authority, be my vice regents, be my ambassadors in the world, bring the glory of God into the earth, and they all consistently, regularly fail over and over again. They did fill the earth. Genesis says that they filled it with evil. Right? They filled it with the wrong thing. But then we get to Jesus, and Jesus, as the word of Yahweh, stands in front of his disciples and says, you now have the Holy Spirit. Here's the New Testament creation mandate. Go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. Baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and I'm with you to the end of the age. That's the ultimate creation mandate, the new creation mandate. 
Jesus' resurrection is the beginning of God's new project. The message of Easter is that God's new world has been unveiled in Jesus Christ. And here it is. This is the practical application that we're going to talk about for just a minute. We are invited to belong to it. So what does this mean for us? Jesus emerged on the first day from the tomb. And at the resurrection of King Jesus, the new creation started. Jesus stepped out of the tomb not to die again, but as the one who had defeated death by entering into it and destroying it from the inside out. A new day has dawned, and the light of the world has emerged victorious. Okay? Not for me, but y'all, somebody's got to say amen to that. For real. Like, amen. This is why we are who we are. Jesus is alive. But this is what I meant earlier when I said uh, we'd return to the defeated but not yet destroyed kind of motif of death. We live in this time between the defeat and the destruction of the ultimate enemy. As a church family, we've seen this. In your personal lives, you've probably seen this over the last year and a half, two years, if not before that. We all have been affected by the enemy that is death. All of us. Death is a defeated enemy, but death is not yet a destroyed enemy. But we, we live in this time where there's darkness and night all around. Pastor Brandon and I did not talk about this before, but he just read from 1 Thessalonians 5. I'm going to do the same thing, but from a few verses earlier. 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 4 says this, You are not in darkness, brothers and sisters, did you know that? You are not in darkness, brothers and sisters. How many of you feel like you're in darkness? How many of you hear that and you say, uh, Paul just doesn't understand. <laughs> he just doesn't get it. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, when he had been shipwrecked, locked in prison, beaten several times. He had followed in the footsteps of Jesus and suffered well for the name. And he says, you're not in darkness? And then he says, you're not in darkness, brothers and sisters, for that day to surprise you like a thief? Listen to this. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. We are called and commissioned by King Jesus to go into the world, go into the darkness and night, not to bring further darkness and night and division and discouragement and anger and vitriol and sin. Put that away. That's what we've been talking about for the last several weeks in 1 Peter. Put those things away from you. This is what Paul would say if he were here. Do you not know that you're acting merely human? That's what human beings act like. Stop it. Like we in our, in our, as new, if a man be in Christ, he's a what? New creation. We are new creations in Christ. Don't act merely human. Act like the one in whom you are, where you find your identity. You are now in Christ. So put away those things. You are not children of the light, or you're not children of darkness. You are children of the light, children of the day. If we go into the world and bring further darkness and division and all these things that are so easy to act like human beings in, we are 
uh, we are actually hurting the sake of Jesus, not bringing people to a knowledge of the Lord Jesus. We are called, like we heard earlier, to follow in the footsteps of Jesus, proclaiming his victory to shine light into darkness and day into night. We cannot do that if we look like the world. I didn't say, Jesus didn't say, Paul doesn't say, we might not be able to do it if we look like the world. We will not be able to do what we have been commissioned and empowered to do if we look like the world. Period. If we look like darkness, it will be impossible. You have to have light to illuminate the darkness. You have to have a dawn for the darkness of the night to flee at the rising of the sun. You remember the invasion quote earlier? That on Easter morning, on Resurrection Day, that it's not a stupendous magic trick. It's, it's a, like an invasion. This is what it looks like when the kingdom of God invades the world. You ready? Here's what it doesn't look like. Uh, all the political rhetoric in our world today. No, it does not. That is not the kingdom of God. Please hear me clearly. It's not. When the kingdom of God invades the earth, empowered by the Spirit, with the message of a risen Savior, this is what it looks like. It looks like the poor in spirit being sent in to invade. The meek, those who mourn, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. The merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, those who are persecuted for the sake of the Lord Jesus. You know where that comes from? From the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus tells us this is what a kingdom life looks like. When, the, when heaven invades earth, it doesn't look like what we think it looks like. It looks like not the 82nd Airborne being sent in. Praise the Lord for the 82nd Airborne. I just, but it, that's not what it looks like. It looks like a meek, wise, faithful servant of Jesus being sent in. When heaven invades earth, this is what it looks like. The good news when that happens is that darkness must flee. It must. When the sun arises, the darkness must flee. And when we proclaim as children of the light, as the salt of the earth, the light of the world, the children of the day, that the sun has dawned, that the light has shone, then the darkness must flee and King Jesus must be glorified. This is what we're called to do as children of the day. And this is why we have gathered today, the first day of the week, to celebrate the resurrection of our King. Jesus is alive and that changes everything. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that Jesus is alive. We have a risen Savior, a risen King, who on the third day stepped out of the tomb, on the first day of new creation, the first day of the week, Jesus emerged victorious. He himself told us that he has the keys of death and Hades. 
and that we have been called to belong to the day. We are no longer in darkness, brothers and sisters, but we are children of the day, children of the light. God, I pray that it will be said of Calvary Baptist Church, of those in our church family who are in other parts of the world proclaiming the gospel of the Lord Jesus and for the person in this room who will go to work tomorrow morning right down the street. God, that everywhere we go, we would proclaim this message as children of the light that Jesus has conquered death. He has laid his life down on the cross of Calvary. He has atoned for the sins of his people and he emerged victorious. And that in Jesus something new has begun and we're called into that I pray that we would not be like the world that we would not invade uh, with anger and destruction and uh, um, poor humor and saying things that don't bring honor to the Lord Jesus Christ that when heaven invades earth that we would go into the world as the meek as the mourners as the peacemakers as those who are have an insatiable desire for righteousness. And your word tells us that's how you change the world. So help us to be the ones through whom the change comes. We love you. We thank you for Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Would y'all please stand?